Hello. To tweet or not to tweet? That is this week's front page question. Gary Lineker was within his rights to compare the government's language on its refugees policy to that of 1930s Germany, but it does not help the BBC in its battle with a critical government over impartiality. There's been plenty of media coverage, and in my view it would have been better if Mr Lineker stopped tweeting on this matter, since the government has clearly chosen to focus on the asylum and refugee issues in the run-up to the general election. Controversy will continue. Mr Lineker's tweets will make it more difficult for the corporation's journalists. The BBC needs to be regarded as impartial, not least because the debate needs to be rooted in facts, not myths, and the corporation needs to be trusted to deliver them, unpalatable as they may be. You'll be able to read more about my views in an opinion piece in The Guardian. You'll find a link to it in the programme description of this programme. Well, the tweet debate is in danger of overshadowing yet another BBC Cuts announcement, which once more raises the question of whether the corporation has a vision of public service broadcasting to go along with its plans to safeguard its business future. So, on this week's programme, we're focusing on Tuesday's announcement that signalled the end of the BBC Singers, its in-house chamber choir, resulting in the loss of 20 posts. There will also be a 20% reduction of roles in the BBC's English orchestras, symphony, concert and philharmonic. This is all part of a plan that the BBC says is to prioritise quality, agility and impact. And, of course, it's very much part of the BBC's need to find huge savings to meet the funding gap created by the government's decision to freeze the licence fee. Well, to discuss the implication of the BBC's review of classical music... I was delighted to be joined by Paul Hughes, who was the director of the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Chorus and of the BBC Singers for 23 years, and who only left his post just last July. I spoke to him on Wednesday, the day after the announcement. I began by asking him why these proposed cuts should be a matter of concern to the public at large. It should matter to the public because... The gradual reduction in music, in music availability, in music content, in music provision, in music education has been like a creeping disease that's been going through society for many, many years. The BBC, I think, as, as custodians of these performing ensembles and as, as a publicly funded organisation, I think have a duty of care to the ensembles as much as they do to the audiences. And to dismantle those and then claim that audiences are better served by some kind of concoction that is two orchestras being managed by one person, programmed by a different person in a different part of the country probably, and a whole choral group, the only choral group amongst five orchestras, to be axed. Well, I look, I am... Well, you sound speechless to me, actually. I am speechless. I mean... There are so many levels of anger too attached to this that come from the livelihood uh, and well-being of the singers and the staff that looked after them and uh, the dedicated level of skill, which doesn't exist anywhere else. Professional choirs are not all the same. And the kind of choirs that can sing the range of repertoire that the BBC singers undertake on a daily basis simply doesn't exist anywhere else. 
Uh, you're not going to go to the Monteverdi Choir or the Xaudi and, and ask them if they'll pick up the latest thing where the ink is still wet. I'll come, if I may, to the detail a little bit later, but I wanted to get sort of a picture of the importance of the music of the BBC to the musical life of this country, so that these aren't just cuts, as it were, that affect the BBC. They have a wider impact. I mean, the BBC, I think, is the biggest employer and engagement musicians in the UK. So this is not just going to impact upon the listener at home, is it? No, not at all. I mean, it's going to impact... I mean, they are. They are employers. They are a public service organisation paid for by the licence fee that brings with it certain expectations, which I don't believe they're now fulfilling. I mean, this matters on so many levels. What is this signalling? Is this signalling the BBC's gradual withdrawal from its commitment to live music, to employing musicians, to the public service remit that brings with it a requirement, a privileged requirement to present the music which is new, which is neglected, which is unusual, that other orchestras that are more, have to be more uh, commercially aware, uh, simply can't do. And so the ecology, if you like, the landscape, chorally and orchestrally in this country is very finely balanced between the Arts Council publicly funded orchestras, the few that don't receive any public funding, and the funding that comes through the licence fee. It's a very delicate balance that has taken many, many years to achieve. So when you affect, essentially, when you affect the BBC orchestras and singers, you affect the musical life of this country in a much wider way than people might, might understand. You do. It's not taking the money away from one place to put it somewhere else. Everything will shrink. Everything will be reduced. Everything will be less. Opportunities will be fewer the up-and-coming composers, where is their work going to be performed? The up-and-coming singers that we're supposed to be, that the BBC is supposed to be investing in education, music education about choral singing, where will they sing? Where will they go for their opportunities? Well, you see, the, the problem here is that, you know, we've heard other, other, other programmes about the cuts in local radio, and everybody in the BBC would say, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be any cuts, there have to be. We're stuck with the frozen licence fee. You, the musical area, has to take their share of the cuts. Yes. Are you saying that actually that should not happen? That in a public service organisation, if you're choosing priorities, music should be a priority? No, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take our share of cuts. Absolutely not. But let's not forget that these, these cuts are choices. These are choices that the BBC has made strategically, politically, editorially, if you like, to reduce the commitment to serious classical music. So let, let's not forget that. I think it's absolutely essential that that is front and centre. Well, the BBC would say, you haven't been spared, but we haven't singled you out. That may well be, but to have... If, if you listen to the interview that was on Front Row last night uh, with uh, Simon Wedd, the newly installed head of orchestras and choirs, which I should add is also head of orchestras and choirs only for England, not for Scotland and Wales, saying, well, this is just a consultation. Well, it doesn't sound to the world like a consultation. It sounds like a done deal and asking the questions afterwards. I mean, is this a fait accompli? As I understood the interview, it's a done deal, as it were, uh, with the finance department of the BBC, i.e. they've determined the level of cuts, the precise nature of the cuts, where the axe falls, may be up to consultation, but my understanding is that the overall sum of money has to be found. 
Yes, that may well be the case, but how it's found and where it's found and the involvement of the musicians themselves in designing what that future might look like rather than having it dumped upon them is absolutely essential if you want to get any kind of ownership, however difficult and unpleasant the outcome is. It's felt less painfully if you have had some engagement and consideration and consultation ahead of the event rather than after. I just find it astonishing that they and indeed the Arts Council calling for an opera review after having made their decisions about opera funding, for example, that one should should behave in this way. What, they take the decisions first and then have a review afterwards? Take the decisions first and, and announce them publicly and have the review after, particularly for an organisation that is so completely paranoid about a public reputation, a reputational damage. This could so easily have been lessened had it been done differently. Now, you've said you were shocked at the man of the haste and the illogicality of the decision. Let's take on the question of the haste. I mean, the BBC probably would say, look, we did a proper review, which everybody contributed to looking at uh, classical music. We did this and, and music generally in the BBC, and we concluded this in about April. So that was the general consultation, if you like, I suspect. And these are our specific proposals for what to do in the light of that, but the financial targets have to be hit. Do you have any... I mean, does that ring true to you, that there was a real consultation by people who knew what they were doing? The consultation was undertaken and led by people who know nothing about the classical music world, reporting up to people who know nothing about the classical music world. And yes, the music business was was consulted up to a point. I, as the longest-serving director of two of the senior groups in the BBC, was interviewed once and never heard from, from again. And so the outcome of this particular process, in the first instance, seemed to be a massive restructuring that brought Lorna Clark in from pop to be head of music, including classical music, which is an unusual decision. The creation of a new role, which we all thought was probably going to end up somewhere like this. Alan Davy reporting to somebody completely different from where he had been. So the controller of Radio 3 was, was not reporting to somebody who was... Well, the controller of Radio 3 more or less disenfranchised in many ways. You know, I don't blame Alan for heading for the hills. Uh, you know, why would he? I think this... This restructuring is extraordinary and looking back on it with the benefit of hindsight you know, and a certain amount of distance since I left in, in July, one can see this very long game that's been played and is continuing to be played. I wouldn't hold my breath and sit relaxed within the orchestras as well to see that there's going to be the same number of orchestras that there currently are within the next five years. I mean, it's interesting to note that there's no specific reference to the orchestras in Northern Ireland, in Wales and Scotland. A brief note suggests that there may be some lessons to be learned. Well, the Northern Ireland Orchestra is not a BBC orchestra, let's not forget. They have a commitment to Radio 3 to preserve certain programmes. But no, there are no cuts that we know of heading the way of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales or the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Is that a cause for celebration? I don't think so. I imagine those orchestra members are feeling extremely anxious. Well, let's look, if we may, about the precise cuts which are proposed. You are outraged about what's happening to the BBC singers. The BBC will not give us the figures on the savings involved there. Uh, do you, I mean, have you any idea about how much might be saved by getting rid of BBC singers? Look, oh gosh, I can't, I can't even remember. It's, I guess the, the BBC singers' operation annually is about one and a half million, perhaps. 
I don't know. One would ne- really need to analyse the figures. It's very difficult within such an opaque organisation as the BBC to find real financial information on this because so many aspects of, of the different performing groups fall within different departments of the BBC, whether it's finance, IT, personnel, HR, whatever. And why is it so important to keep a group of if you're permanent singers together in this way? The suggestion seems to be there are lots of wonderful singers out there on the freelance market who can be recruited and brought in when necessary. What is the argument for keeping together a group like the BBC Singers? If you look around the world at the great choirs and especially the great orchestras, whether we're talking New York Phil, Berlin Phil, Vienna Philharmonic, whatever... The one thing that singles them all out is that they have regular personnel. They are used to performing together. That brings excellence. That brings quality. And what is the point of having anything less than the best that you can have? Yes, you can pick pick up freelancers. They might come together. Some of them might be good. Some of them might be less good. You know, it just depends who's available on the day and prepared to work for those for those fees on that particular program. The point of having the BBC singers is their incredible skill, the speed with which they can read any amount of music, whether they're performing with the Pet Shop Boys or something that was written by Pierre Boulez or just, you know, where the ink is still wet on the page. They absolutely rise to it, and they are an amazing ambassadorial ensemble for those who would conduct choirs, those who would compose for choirs, and those who would sing in choirs. It's an extraordinary group. How high, highly regarded are they internationally? Very highly regarded. I mean, since yesterday lunchtime when I first heard about this, I've had messages coming in from the United States, from Australia, from across Europe, saying, this is ridiculous, you know, the BBC singers are, you know, at the very pinnacle of choral singing in this world. And the BBC has got five orchestras and one professional chamber choir. Why would you be getting rid of the one professional chamber choir and hanging on to all the other orchestras? If you're going to have to make cuts, would you not necessarily have cut that pie in a different way? Well, let's look at another part of the pie that they've cut. This is 20% reduction of roles in the BBC English orchestras, symphony, concert and philharmonic. How do you go about doing that? I mean, is there any way of... There's no way, presumably, protecting all the players. So do you reduce the violins? I mean, I'm totally ignorant about how you would go about this. Would you reduce sections of the orchestra? It's monumentally complicated, Roger, because you would probably start, or the BBC bean counters would start, by thinking, well, let's just not fill the vacancies that exist in all the orchestras. Now, those vacancies are very often going to be in absolutely key positions, principal players, front desk players, who are vital to the artistic success of an organisation like the BBC Symphony Orchestra, for example. If it's voluntary redundancies, you might find that, again, it's some of those key players at the front that decide to take the voluntary redundancy. You can't choose where those cuts fall when you do it that way. And so cutting by 20%, artistically, it's going to be a complete carnage, in my view. It has to be done so carefully, and it it has to take time. You can't do this in a hurry. Yes, because one of the things, when I was briefly a long time ago responsible theoretically for an orchestra, actually, for the Philharmonic when I was in Manchester, um, I suddenly realised that, of course, every person in that orchestra has to be good. I mean, it's not a question of a player having an off day. I mean, that can't happen in in the sort of classical music, can it? Of course it can't. I mean, these are people who dedicate their lives 
at enormous expense. They who provide the instruments themselves, often costing tens of thousands of pounds, in some cases hundreds of thousands of pounds, they provide those instruments which the BBC benefits from. Can you help me with a, a, a part of the, I'm not sure you'll be able to, to be honest, part of the BBC statement. It says that it, it's part of a plan that prioritises quality, agility and impact. Well, I'm sure you disagree about quality. What does agility mean? The, the implication to me would be, oh, well, if we use more freelancers and we don't have many staff members, we can do more, be more flexible. Uh, do you think that's what agility means in this context? Well, one could infer from that statement that those qualities don't currently exist within the BBC orchestras. I've worked all my life with different orchestras. I've run four, four major orchestras in my time, and I have never come across an orchestra or a chorus, a choir, with such extraordinary ability and agility uh, to go and perform in whatever different place you want, playing whatever music, singing whatever music it is that you want. I mean, these qualities currently exist absolutely. The fact that the BBC chooses not to take advantage of those or to say that's what we're looking for is disingenuous, to say the least. And how about this suggestion that the plan, the new plan prioritises uh, impact and again, tell me what that means, because I don't understand Well, neither do that. I, really. I mean, what more impact could you have? Yes, I mean, so this is what the plan apparently does. The suggestion is that you're not having sufficient impact at the moment with the way you are structured. Well, it's been quite clear for a good number of years now how little the BBC values classical music and values its orchestras. You know, apart from the work that we do within the proms, there's almost no marketing support, no profile, no pride shown no reward given no valuing of the work that they do day in day out and yet still the musicians do it to an astonishingly high level and it's that's not appreciated you know the director general might rock up you know at the first night of the proms the chairman might arrive at the last night of the proms you know charlotte moore i think t came to a prom and said how lovely it all was and then was never seen again that's the bbc director of content who's responsible for everything yeah Yes, I mean, these are people for whom what we do doesn't matter. It has no value. They have, it has no interest to them. They don't understand that the reason there is a very small market for, let's say, serious culture on television is because the BBC chooses not to put very much of it on television, for example. So the kind of new audiences that the BBC Symphony Orchestra and BBC Singers went out to attract through the work with Jules Buckley, through the work with the various authors that they have been working with for the last few years, attracting capacity new audiences, doing exactly what the BBC asked of them. Do you think, well, what more can we do? What else can we do to, be, to make an impact, to be agile, to be flexible, to be good value? Has this undermined your faith in the BBC as a public service broadcaster? You worked for it for a long, long time. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know what public service means in the BBC's context now. If the BBC is not to do that which others can't do, what are they for? I really don't understand what they're for. It just seems to be about chasing ratings. They want to, they want to chase in the, in the, on, the, on the coattails of, of Netflix or Amazon, although they say they don't. But clearly that is what the BBC has become. And those which provide the more niche aspects of public service broadcasting and have worked so hard to bring it into the 21st century, still with those values of public service broadcasting, 
I certainly, when I was there, I started to feel completely out of sync with the culture of the BBC. Not a pleasant place to work. Absolutely not a pleasant place to work. And I left at just the right time for me. And I am absolutely heartbroken for those people who are still there and struggling through this. Well, what happens next? Because the BBC says it's open to a consultation. I don't think the consultation would extend to the the cuts, the, the precise money, the amount of money that has to be saved. But is there anything worth, in your view, consulting about? Well, there is an element of this which we haven't discussed, which is the, the timing of it. To cut the BBC singers on the eve of their centenary to do it at such speed to deny them an appearance even in the proms uh, is, I mean, that is vicious. That's extremely unpleasant. And I don't understand, well, I do understand why they, they didn't want to risk there being any kind of public outcry at the proms and support for that group when they appeared. But they've been there for the last 99 years and it's going to be a diminution of the proms in, in my view. Oh, well, you think that actually, if they'd appeared, they would have got an amazing ovation. Well, I, I'm sure that would have been the case. And you think the BBC might have been embarrassed by that? I'm sure they would. I'm absolutely sure they would. I mean, when I think back to the first night of the proms in 2021, when we played to an, an empty Albert Hall, and the BBC singers spread out in the stalls with great social distancing between them, I was in tears. That was one of the most emotionally powerful musical statements that music suddenly had returned to the Albert Hall, to the airwaves, to television, on the BBC. And it was the BBC Singers and the BBC Symphony Orchestra there. And that was so important to the BBC then. And for all the years that I was there, I remember every time the licence fee renewal came around, the BBC performing groups were trotted out as being the epitome of public service broadcasting, and aren't they marvellous? And then were put back in a drawer at the end of it. Uh, until the next time. And this was just such an example, and, and this is the reward for that. So, no, I don't imagine the cuts are going to be reversed or any extra money is going to be found, but it may well be that there's a different way of doing it and a different way of looking at it and a more sensitive way of, of handling it. I mean, the, the one of the things that struck me, I didn't understand till I was told this really by Colin Brown of The Voice of the Listener and Viewer a couple of three, three weeks ago, that Ofcom changes in, I think, 2016, 2017, meant that the BBC had to consult if it was introducing new services. But it does not have to consult if it's cutting existing services. So it doesn't have to justify itself to any external body do you think there's any hope in an external body or Parliament itself might be energised to say to the BBC, these are the wrong priorities? I mean, it's unlikely, presumably, the Treasury will change their view. But this is about the future of public service broadcasting, what public service broadcasting is. And the BBC, after all, is a means to an end, not the end in itself. One thing I, can't, I find it rather depressing, actually, is the absence of that debate about what public service is to be, service broadcasting and media, what they're to be in the next 10, 15, 20 years. I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't hear it articulated. I don't hear it articulated from the top of the BBC either. No, that debate has, has, has not been had for, for the longest time. Absolutely the longest time. And I do find it shocking that we are not talking about what does public service broadcasting mean in the 21st century and what does it mean to the BBC? 
And there's so much talk about, well, it's all about audiences. We have to serve the audiences. We have to do this. Well, what about the audiences for classical music? What kind of a deal are they getting? Is, are they not, do they not epitomize what public service broadcasting is all about? Because what we're providing, live music ensembles that are incredibly flexible and agile, responding to what is, what is needed and creating new types of opportunities for young musicians to engage at a time when there is precious little opportunity through their schools or through their formal education. You know, the, the fundamentals of public service broadcasting and the BBC's responsibility, whether or not that's found at government, I don't know. The relationship between government and the BBC never seems to me a harmonious one. And the Arts Council's own settlement seems to reflect the philistinism that comes from a Tory government. Always has. Well, Paul Hughes, thank you very much indeed. And, um, of course, I'm entirely objective, but I hope that you have a great success in the campaign, which clearly you feel needs to be mounted to protect serious music in this country. I feel very strongly. I, f- I care about those musicians, but also I, I spent 23 years of my life building something up and I absolutely, I, you know, I'm, I'm angrier than I can say at watching it being dismantled and unpicked so casually. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on anyway, Roger. It's nice to talk to you. And that's it for this week. Unlike the BBC, we have no funding. But if you think we're providing a worthwhile service, please do support us. You can do it easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And it's a bargain at only pound ninety-nine per month. I know I would say that, but I think it is. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at rogerbolton at mastodonapp.uk or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeatwatch.com. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye.